I wish you hadn't refused. I mean, forbidden me to. Of course, you were quite right. To go to the trial today. Your coughing, my dear, might have distracted me. It was important that I should concentrate on Mr. Keene's performance. Of course. How I shall pray the verdict will be not guilty. Must I listen to more of your silly pity for every scoundrel, man or woman? I do pity her. Who needs pity more than a woman who sinned? You always forget that punishment is part of the scheme, an extremely necessary part of it. Doesn't life punish us enough, Tommy? Doesn't it? Why should we hurt each other? We've no right to be cruel. If I'm certain of anything, I'm certain of that. Hello and welcome to the Lone Acting Nominees Podcast, a show where I'm joined each week by a guest to discuss a movie that only received one Oscar nomination, that being for one of its performances. We'll talk about the performance in question, the movie as a whole, and its place in the Oscar race, among other things. I'm Gordon McNulty, and this week I am joined once again uh, by uh, my friend David Trugai to discuss Ethel Barrymore's Oscar-nominated performance in the 1947 film The Paradine Case. Paradine. I've, I've made note of the fact that it's pronounced Paradine and then said it wrong in the intro. Anyway, thank you uh, for com- uh, for coming back. It's been a minute since you've been on this show. I've been on yours in the interim, but it's been not all, like, what, since August? Since the miniseries? I, I, I guess so. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It was August last year. Yeah, it was summer. I had just moved and, and we did the miniseries. Yeah. Hello. Hello. <laughs> I, I, I would have said Paradigm for sure. So uh, I'm glad you, you set this up right from the start. That it's Paradine. Paradine? Par- Paradine. Yes. I wrote down a minute. Rhymes with Caradine. Uh, uh, which okay, was... That's easy to remember. Rhymes yes. with Caradine. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah. Welcome back. This, you are now the third guest of the past four episodes that I've done to have uh, completed the set, to have covered uh, all four acting categories. It hadn't happened until like three episodes ago. And now uh, three out of the last four have uh, covered all four acting categories. Uh, yeah, we've because we've talked about Best Actor like six times with uh, the, the 2006 Best Actor plus yes. Saturday Night Fever and The Hurricane. Uh, we talked about Catherine Hepburn in Long Day's Journey into Night for Best Actress. Uh, and uh, our very first episode, Christopher Plummer in Beginners, was a, a supporting actor. And now here we are talking about Best Supporting Actress for Ethel Barrymore. So you have uh, uh, completed the set, as it were. Uh, I hadn't even thought about that, that this is our first supporting actress discussion. It's interesting. Yeah, but of course, you're right. You're right. Yeah. I always uh, how many we've done so far. Yeah. Since it's it, been a, almost a year now, of course, it's uh, it, it hasn't added up as much as it could have been. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This, w- so what would that make? This is our ninth episode together. Is that right? Well, I'm counting yeah. on you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, unless I'm forgetting one. I think that's that's almost a, a, a 10%-ish of, of the, because this is like just over the 90th. It's like 90 something, 93, I think. So. Uh, almost it makes me feel bad <laughs> no no it's I, I love having you on you're uh always no, a no, no, that's not what i mean I, oh. I feel bad because my 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 podcast is is resting without me any announcing anything or anything anything and i thought if i keep going the way i wanted to go I, i'd be up to the, i don't know 20s or 30s and and now it's just I, I i've just stopped for now i'm sure i continue if by any chance anyone's listening to me now here and wondering if i'm still alive i am um so uh, that's why I feel bad when you when you. But I'm so I'm proud of you actually to to hear that you that you just keep going 
Thank you. Uh, I don't know how I've been able to do it so far, uh, but uh, we keep doesn't going. Doesn't matter as long as you've been able to, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, so tell me a little bit about why you picked this movie uh, out of out of the list. Well, I don't even remember when we talked about it. What's the last time you recorded an episode on my podcast? Which I uh, feel like it was even before then when we talked about this one. Maybe. Um, I think my my main intention was to do a movie that's a bit older because we've been discussing so many movies that and, and the oldest one was um, was uh, a long day's journey, which was which, which was from the sixties. That was a, that was an older one, but I I was just curious in doing a, a movie that's really old because I'm, you know I I pride myself in being able to discuss any movie from any year uh, because I try to be uh, knowledgeable about every decade and I, I saw it as a kind of a challenge. And then yeah. I took a little bit of the challenge by picking a Hitchcock movie because I've seen every Hitchcock movie. And I don't know if this is, is a transition already. By uh, <laughs> looking at the movie again, I realized that I remembered absolutely nothing about this movie. Um, so I, I basically had to watch it all from 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 scratch again. So um, so but this is basically I just wanted I thought older movie and then Hitchcock is, is an interesting uh, point of discussion. Yeah. Yeah. I think the first time I'm, I'm remembering now the first time we talked about this movie in any real capacity was uh when we did the the bonus episode that uh we recorded after my 50th episode like for the announcement for the the mini series we were going to be doing uh and uh there was like a question that came up of like have i considered any movies to be for what the last episode could be and i think this is one of the ones that you mentioned just because like it's interesting that there's a hitchcock movie on the list and at that point, I don't think I even realized that it was a Hitchcock movie uh, because it's not one that comes up at all when you talk about his career. So I only really knew it from the perspective of this Barrymore nomination. Uh, but obviously, uh, it's it's not a movie that I ended up saving to be my finale because we're talking about it right now. Uh, but I think from there, that may have planted the seeds for us to eventually uh, talk about it as we're doing right now. So we are talking okay. about... The Paradine Case from 1947, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, written by Alma Reville, uh, James Bridey, Dave, uh, Ben Hecht, and David O. Selznick in various passes, although Selznick was the only one that got the writing credit. More on that, uh, more on the Selznick sort of interference with this project later, because there's a lot of it, uh, based on the 1933 novel of the same name by Robert Hitchens. It stars Gregory Peck, Anne Todd, Alita Valley. Charles Lawton, Charles Coburn, Joan Tetzel, Ethel Barrymore, Louis Jordan, and Leo G. Carroll. Uh, it premiered uh, December 29th in Los Angeles simultaneously in two different theaters across the street from one another, which I thought was interesting. I, it's probably just how they did it back then, but interesting nonetheless. And then uh, opened January 8th in New York as like a, a wider release uh, with a lot of cuts in in the interim between the original screenings and the the version that we have now uh which kind of leads right into our uh nomination here ethel barrymore in uh the second shortest oscar nominated performance of all time as it currently exists what's the shortest one just it's um uh, uh hermione hermione Baddeley in room at the top uh -huh. which I haven't seen, but she's in like three minutes, like not even three minutes of that. It's like two minutes and 50 some seconds. Uh, but Ethel Barrymore in the, the current version of the movie, the paradigm parrot, God, the parodying case, 
<laughs> they only say it like a hundred times in the movie. It's only the last name of one of the main characters. Uh, in the version of the Paradine case that exists now, she is in, according to Screen Time Central, uh, three minutes and 52 seconds of this movie. It's a very, very small performance. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, not a small performance. It's a small role. But it is... Uh, uh, she she doesn't fade into the background of those scenes that she's that she appears in. It's, it's a she has a presence in yes. her, her very small presence. I will say, but but it's like two scenes. That's that's really yes. that's it's it's interesting. It's really interesting and odd to see to watch this movie. I I, I don't think you'd watch this movie and and think, oh, this must have been an Oscar nomination. But yes. just maybe not so much because of the performance. Although we we will discuss that, but. Really, the length is really it's 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 really strange. It's confusing to see that and think, oh wow, how how did anyone notice that? Yeah, um, it's like it's one of those cases where like she her character serves primarily to give you a uh, a lens through which to interpret another character, and yes. that character that she like supports and that she like sort of exists in in reference to is already a, a relatively minor character for a large portion of this movie. It's yes. a character that, that shows up at the at the beginning in one scene that she's also in and then is does not show back up until the, the third act of the movie. Uh, and then is a major character in that third act. But yes. like like Charles Lawton is Charles Lawton is like justifiably sort of further down the cast list in terms of prominence of the role. And yes. for her to be not even like in reference to Gregory Peck or uh, Alita Valley or even like Charles Coburn, like like it's 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 really several steps removed from the the main sort of uh, heft of the movie, uh, which is interesting as to why she's the one that, that singled out. Did you read any about the um the the deleted scenes with her? No, no. As I so, as I said before, we started recording. I. I really, um, you know, I normally prepare as yeah. extensively as possible. I like normally spend days watching every movie that get, gets into my uh, under my my nose. And uh, this time, I I I'm really I'm really unprepared, which I'm kind of enjoying now that we started talking. Actually, I don't yeah. feel bad for the thought. So no, I didn't read anything. I, have, I I read almost nothing about the film. I watched the film. I watched one or two other films, and and that's it. I'm ready to talk anyway. So tell yeah. me. Uh, I mostly just got this from like skimming the the IMDb trivia and the Wikipedia page, but uh, I didn't even do that, which is surprising. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so like, there's a lot of sort of fraught production on this uh, between Hitchcock and Selznick, uh, and we'll talk more about that later. Like, there was a lot of sort of butting heads. Selznick very much wanted to, uh, just like you know, the Hollywood producer at this point in time. Co not coming off of because it had been like eight years, but uh, still sort of riding the high of Gone with the Wind and Rebecca and just like really exerting his power. And yeah, I mean, uh, Hitchcock and Selznick famously never got along, and they made yes. a couple of movies together. So uh, and this was the this was the last one on their contract, and they did not renew a contract together after this. It's not surprising. The last, yeah. So like from the start, like even in, in casting, Selznick was already playing his hand. So by the time it comes to the post-production, things have really come to a head. Uh, Hitchcock's original cut of this movie ran like three hours, but uh, by the end of it, like 
Selznick took full control of post-production. He oversaw the editing. He oversaw the scoring of it. He like oversaw everything after filming. Uh, so he cuts down that three-hour cut to uh, it was two hours and twelve minutes. Was the screening uh, was was the length of the of the film as it was screened for the Academy, most notably. Uh, it ends up being he cuts it down a few more times to what we have now, which is an hour fifty four. So he cuts out, what would that be, 18 minutes of screen time or so? Uh, mm-hmm. And among those 18 minutes, there's two more Ethel Barrymore scenes where she's really highlighted that, like, from, like, reviews of the time, from, like, uh, a discussion of them at the time, one of the scenes is a scene just between her and Gregory Peck where she is uh, trying to make a case for him to save uh, uh, Mrs. Paradine. Uh, because mm-hmm. that's like the thrust of her character is that she's so uh, worked up about this case that her husband, Charles Lawton, is presiding over as the judge. And she, you know, doesn't want to see this woman potentially put to death for murder, which she's accused of. And her husband is this like sadistic, lecherous old pervert that uh, is gross and domineering and has her sort of entirely under his thumb. Uh, which we get even in the two scenes of her. But th- that's the first scene uh, that was cut of of her like almost going behind her husband's back to try to get Gregory Peck, this lawyer, to to uh, to fight for her really strongly. And then the other scene that was cut was a scene between her and her husband where she has a cough that she's desperately trying to suppress because she knows it's going to it's getting on his nerves. like that that also comes back at the ending scene. Mm-hmm where his excuse for forbidding her from coming to the courtroom is that her cough would have distracted him from his duties. But apparently there was a scene that got cut of her having to cough and having to hold it in around him, which like, I can see both of those scenes sort of building up more for this character, giving her more of a forefront, giving her more of a perspective and solidifying the opinion of a voter in 1947 who's already looking at this as Ethel Barrymore first lady of the theater previous Oscar winner like legend of acting and then having a handful of scenes in this Hitchcock movie like yeah of of course you would vote for her Uh, but then after that Selznick cut uh, those scenes out and then in 1980 there was a flood that supposedly uh, uh, like destroyed all of the remaining like negatives or whatever of of the cut scenes and so probably never going to see that full restoration of the rest of this performance yeah interesting and that's that's all just like backstory for things that aren't actually in this movie as we uh as we in 2023 can perceive it but it's 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 worth noting for people that maybe watched this movie uh and were scratching their head at this nomination that there is a further context that we do not have for this nomination. And sometimes that just happens. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Interesting. Makes it even more curious. I, yeah. I would argue. Yeah. Uh, interesting little footnote for this one, but uh, uh, with the performance that we actually have, ha- we haven't really talked about the actual performance of it. Just, just a uh, uh, surrounding sort of curiosities, but a, uh, what are your thoughts on this performance that's being given? I, I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to um, talk too much about the fact that it's so short and that that we see so little of her, 
and I, I argue that it, I, I think it's two scenes, if I'm not wrong. I think it's two two scenes. One, yes. one very early on, or not early on. Even that is not true. It takes a while until we even see her and, and Charles Lawton. And then one right at the very end, where we see the, the two of them again. Um, and the scenes are also quite similar in a way. I mean, a lot of has happened in between, so that, that changes the dynamic a little bit. Uh, but but what she expresses, what she what she what she shows, is is pretty similar, I think. And I, I don't know. I mean, it's a good performance. I, yeah. I wouldn't argue anything against it. But it's just it's it's just very small, you know. I. It's so hard to say when you when you watch a movie with with the focus that we have here, what, like saying, okay, this is the Oscar-nominated performance, so you focus on her, of course, more. And there are a lot of performances in this film, and a lot of and most of the performances uh, are longer and, and and get more screen time, and are still less noticeable. But you focus on it more. So I wonder how much if if I want to. <clears throat> If I want to say that her performance is is quite good, I don't know if I would if I would have said that if I, if I had known that she was nominated for an Oscar for this role. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like a like like a quantum particle where the fact that we're observing it changes our perception yeah. of it, changes its existence. Like I I don't know what I would have thought of this. Perf- I don't know if I would have thought of this performance if I was watching it not for her. Like a similarly small role might even have more screen time uh uh there's an actress that shows up in the middle of this movie as like the innkeeper of uh the the house that mm-hmm. the uh parodines had lived at that peck goes to visit and she's like very briefly in this movie and i yeah. didn't take any note of her performance to the point that like uh on my notes here where i have written down the cast of the movie to read off in the intro uh, I had her name written down because she shows up in the opening credits. And then after the movie, I crossed it off because like, I don't need to read off. Uh, it's uh, I'm actually going to look it up now. Just uh, her name is uh, Isabel Elsom plays the innkeeper in this movie. Uh, and that's such a small role that I crossed off her name because I didn't feel she was as important to mention up top. But like if somehow she had gotten a nomination and I had to pay attention to her three minutes of screen time or whatever, Maybe I would have had, maybe I would have noticed more about it. Maybe I would have had more to say, but uh, yeah. Uh, again, not a ton to talk about here in terms of actual material, but I do think she does a good job of yes. Uh, it's it's a necessary character for us to get the full picture of Charles Lawton's character who yes. does end up becoming very instrumental by the end. It just takes a minute to get to it. So she feels sort of not out of place, but but you kind of question the characterization until we get to the courtroom act and Lawton yeah. is so, so forefronted. And we need that perspective that he is this neglectful husband, like mental, like uh, uh, mentally abusive towards her, uh, belittling, uninterested in her, and it 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 paints a wider picture of him in a way that, uh, I mean, it it feels like the Hitchcock sort of thing. Like everyone in this movie, well, not everyone, but a lot of the figures that we're supposed to look to as like the the law are corrupt to some degree, not necessarily even in practice, but just like in moral and. Her character, yes. her performance, I feel like, of this nervous, 
like her her tics and the way she'll interrupt herself so abruptly uh in the middle of a sentence to go off on a different thought feels very like like it it it, it gives you an insight into that relationship immediately yes I, I think her introduction is quite interesting. And, and you mentioned, uh, you said it is typical for Hitchcock to show like the, the police and everything as being corrupt. I think there's there's even something else here that, that I want to discuss later. But um, her introduction is very interesting because she's sitting next to, um, oh, I, I, would, I would be so bad, Anne Todd, uh, uh, the, the one who plays Gregory Peck's wife. Um, and she's sitting next to her and they're talking. And I think it would be possible to not, to. I mean, you said that she looks scared, and I think that's true. Like her face seems so frail, and her eyes are so big. And you, you could again. I don't know if you if you notice that if you if you wouldn't focus on her, but you could notice that she she's nervous. She she seems more like out of step as you would imagine, because you don't really know what's going on. And then when her husband appears as Charles Lawton, and and he of course is is Charles Lawton, so he 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 conquers the room when he enters it, right? Yeah. It's impossible for him not to do it. And then he takes her place. Like he sits exactly in the same spot as she has before. And that's a very interesting choice, I think. And yeah. the way he acts to to and talk to this character and how how uncomfortable this whole scene is. And then like there's this moment, and again, I want to talk about it, and it's nothing to do with Ethel Barrymore, but when when the camera shows and Todd's naked shoulder, yeah, and Todd's almost like falls over, getting close to her. And it's such a sexual moment for a movie from 1947. And then he sits next to her and he starts talking to her. And we cannot get this idea out of our heads that he, he's been thinking of her skin so much. And then he takes her hand. And it's so, it's, it's really, really, it's, it's kind of amazing, I think, for a movie this old to make clear how, um, how much of a, of a, of a predator he almost is. In, yeah. In, 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 and considering that he does this in a place of where his wife was sitting just moments ago makes this very, very interesting. Yeah. And explains her behavior and her, her attitude quite well. Yes, yes. Her character, like, she fits as someone that's observing this behavior from him for decades. Like, they've been, she makes some mention to the fact that they were married when they were young. And now they're both older and he's gotten worse and worse, like... There's there's a, a thing that she says to Anne Todd in that scene where she's talking about how she doesn't like whenever uh, whenever her husband presides over a murder trial. And yeah. uh, Anne Todd says something like, oh, yes, oh, that must be so hard how he comes home all all shaken and, and distressed by all that. The stress must be so hard to take. And there's like a look on Barrymore's face where you can tell that's not what she meant. What she meant was like, yes. he gets really excited and worked up about yes. murder trials in, in like a sadistic way. And it's the, the tenor of that. But like, she doesn't say anything about that because she, no, kno she, kn she knows better than to cause a scene. She knows then to uh, uh, speak against her husband. And she like regrets the fact that she even said it in the first place. And she like sort yes. of shuts up and, and, and gets real quiet and real nervous. And, there's just so many th that she's able to provide such a rich backstory for this woman, such a, a, yes. a, a textured character of the long suffering wife that has been driven to like, she's, she's like, if not outright crazy, 
this is a woman that is severely disturbed by her husband's behavior and locked into it yes. because it's like the 1940s and she's been married to this man for probably like 40 some years if not more uh yeah and so she's like very much stuck in the old ways of like you can't just leave this man he's also a man yeah. of respect he, he's a he's like a a court judge she's a she's a lady she is a she yeah. is credited as lady sophie whatever her last name is or uh, yeah yes like she is entirely stuck and it has taken a real toll on her and that she's able to make this character feel like such like you could have an entire separate movie just about the two of them just like yeah. from the perspective of this abused uh, uh driven to madness wife of a sadistic judge and that would be a whole movie in and of itself and she's able to imbue that level of of sympathy and pathos to this woman who has not even four minutes of screen time in this movie. Like that's true. Yeah. There's a reason her Ethel Barrymore is like, was at her time considered one of the greatest actors alive because yeah, she's able to do that with so little and it's, it's really impressive. And I'm, I'm glad that this is the performance that I, you know, had to focus in on for this because I might not have, really sat with the implications of her performance and her character uh, had I not been focusing on it for this. So yeah, I, I just think it's, Ooh. it's a much more interesting performance than it immediately looks like until you start to peel away at the, just the little things, the, yeah. the little ways she interrupts herself and stops dead in her tracks when she's saying something, because you can tell that's like, Oh, she knows not to say this anymore because she knows her husband's temper. She knows the way he'll react to something like that. Like she has a whole scene where she finally, uh, the, 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 her second scene, the scene at the end uh, where she starts to speak her mind about innocence mm -hmm. and she doesn't want to see women hanged, even if they, even if she did end up murdering her husband, spoiler alert. Like she, she like, What's the phrasing of it um, that I wrote? Oh, like, uh, we, we have no right to be cruel. Why should we hurt each other? Like, mm -hmm. uh, an eye for the an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind, et cetera, et cetera. And while she's giving the speech, she like gestures and knocks over a glass. And the only thing her husband at the far end of this table says is, oh, you knocked over a glass. And it completely cuts off her train of thought and she starts apologizing. And it's really sort of, it's really striking in in just a few like that's probably what a minute and a half scene at the end but it's uh there's a whole world of character in it yeah that's true um and there's three scenes actually i i was wrong uh it's not just two scenes but the first scene where she's at next and hard like when you see her smile there when you when you just like a like take a screenshot of, of her face when she smiles and it's such, it's such a disturbed smile yeah. Like you see right from the start that it's not, it, she's not a happy person. And, and still when she talks to Anton, she's probably happier than she is throughout most of the day. And another thing, and again, I, we haven't talked about the movie in general and I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of this movie. I, I, I yeah. think it's, it's not, it's not really effective, but again, when you take a closer look at many moments, it's, it's, it's much better than you think, or it's, it's more, mm -hmm. There are little details everywhere, and it shows that like Hitchcock's directing is so strong that it it 
it almost manages to to get over the screenplay, which I yeah. think is not very good. It shines um, through a messy production. There's there's yeah. sort of fleeting moments of interest where you can tell like, oh, if Hitchcock had maybe more of a a grasp on this production, if there if Selznick hadn't interfered to the extent that he had, if there hadn't been such like there there's just a lot of behind the scenes things that you can tell i think one one of the things i read on wikipedia is that at a certain point in this production hitchcock just got so bored with it because mm-hmm. he 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 wasn't able to really exert his vision for the project that you can kind of tell some of that starts to bleed through as well where like yes. it is hitchcock if not on full autopilot like n- not using the the breadth of his his talent but even then yeah, hitchcock even then, on I'm, autopilot is still pretty good at i'm not even sure i would agree because i think the like the framing of this film is so interesting when you take a look at yes. it it's similar than, than with the performance if you just watch this movie and and you don't you watch it without a lot of like focus or attention i think you can you miss a lot it doesn't make the movie more exciting to watch because i think it's not the most exciting movie to watch yeah. But um, but the framing when sometimes I I stopped the movie and I, I was I was surprised at some of the 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 shots that that Hitchcock invented here or, or, or put together. And what I wanted to get at now, long story short, um, is after Charles Lawton sits next to Anne Todd, like Ethel Barrymore keeps being right behind him in the background, and she fades almost fades out of the scene, but she's never gone. Like she's always there, and we cannot really assume that she sees what her husband is doing. But she's also not gone. Like she's she's entertaining the other people in the room. Yeah. But she never she never goes away. Like we see we see him grabbing Anton's hand and getting really close to her, and it's really really uncomfortable. And we see his wife in the background all the time, and it makes it so clear that he doesn't care, and it also makes it so clear that she that she is used to seeing what he's doing. That, that there's no hiding here. Um, and yeah. I think that adds so much to her character. And and the way she 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 acts towards her husband, uh, and, and I think that that's something that shines through all the way through the film, even though we don't see her anymore. Because yes. if you think about it, like Charles Lawton's character is 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 pretty disgusting, and he would be just as disgusting if Ethel Barrymore's character wasn't there. Like we don't really need her, but it adds a lot to see that he's not just the the the, the pig he is, but he is a pig who's married to a wife who. Who, who could be a, a really different person if he wasn't the way he is. Yes, exactly, exactly right. He has changed this woman for the worse. And that that he's doing all this, that he's like openly, like not even hiding his, his sort of lecherous flirtation with Anne Todd, doing it in the same room as his wife. Like yeah. that's, that, that's exactly what you're getting at, that she's still there, that she's like, entertaining the other men she's like showing them her jewelry or whatever but that he is so comfortable with sort of groping this woman and offering up like hey come fuck me at some point if you want yes like doing that in the same room as his wife uh while not a a direct facet of barrymore's performance like the sort of symbiotic relationship between barrymore and lawton in that moment uh, uh, really, uh, it, it just adds to both of their characters the fact that she is still in the room there, the fact that you can still see her the whole time that he's doing this. It's not done in close up, 
uh, on Lawton and Todd. It's like a wide shot sort of of the room of them on the couch and then her in the far back. She's always, yeah, you're, you're very, like that's something that I had sort of made passive note on, of, of like, oh, she's still in this scene. That's interesting. But like, yeah, talking, it's, it's a, just another layer of the grossness of this man by keeping her in the scene, by keeping her in the background. And um, of course, uh, I mean, again, again, I don't know how much we want to we'll want to open the discussion, but I think it's relevant that, and, and, and when I said that her role is not really necessary, it is of course necessary because the whole movie is about a man who. <laughs> Who cannot hide his feelings for another woman, although he's married to someone who who's really uh, uh, devoted to him. So there are of course parallels. Like we we are supposed to think that Gregory Peck's character could end up like Charles Lawton if he if he didn't watch out. And and the Antot character is exactly the 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 parallel to Ethel Barrymore's character because she is is seeing the same thing happening to her marriage, exactly. uh, in a way. Uh, which which makes it even more interesting, especially that these two women are the ones who are talking about all of this, and to- they they are basically talking about the same thing. I do wonder uh, again, not want to get ahead of ourselves, but I I one thing that I didn't like about this movie is the ending, like the yeah, the, and I do wonder, like I think you can watch it in two ways. The the ending is like a a, a kind of really odd happy ending of the husband coming back to his wife after like basically falling in love with another woman. But then his wife is forgiving him. Like she's she's taking, she's she's touching his face and she's like, oh, you need a shave. And it's everything is fine. And it's really absurd considering how much he was into this other woman, the uh, Miss Miss Paradin. <laughs> but of course, I, I do wonder if 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 you know if you know Hitchcock, if the ending could be seen as ironic. That we could yeah. believe that everything will be fine, although we have seen what what a man like him could could end up like if he if he became, becomes the Charles Lawton character like twenty years ahead, and we we kind of know that this that doesn't have to be the last time he falls for a client the way he does here. Um, yeah, it's it, hard to say how intentional this is or how much a Selznick wanted to have a happy ending. Like I think both it feels it feels like a Selznick edition. It it could also just be the book. I don't I I don't know anything about the book. Um, but yeah, that feels much more like a studio ending than a Hitchcock ending. But I wouldn't rule out the other interpretation because, I mean, there are readings of Vertigo that said that that Vertigo is the movie where Hitchcock finally admits that he is this kind of lecherous man who who gets obsessed over women. And I mean, the Charles Lawton character is so much like him. Yeah. Like, and and what is he most interested in? A blonde woman, you know, exactly what 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 Hitchcock was famous for. And I think the whole movie is about that in a way, right? About men who can't control their urges and and who fall for women, and and all the relationships in this movie are are very similar, right? Yes. Even even this 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 other man with his daughter, who seems so much like they are they're a married couple too. They yeah. Have this strange dynamic as well, and so all the relationships are very similar. And I just cannot imagine that Hitchcock, who who was more self aware than I think many people give him credit for, would not be able to include these ideas into this movie. And especially again, that shot that I mentioned before of Charles Lawton seeing Anton's shoulder and like, yeah, that shot, that shot genuinely shocked me that they were able to put a shot like that where the camera zooms in on her, her bare shoulder. Like, and that's not something you see in movies from 1947 or 1940s or 1950s. Yeah. It's really unusual. And I mean, like Hitchcock made this shot. That's not in the script. Yes. That's definitely a Hitchcock thing. 
And so I, I, I do wonder, I, 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 I sometimes want to give Hitchcock credit for putting himself in his worst characters. Yeah. Because he, he kept, he was doing that again and again and again. I think it's not, it's not a coincidence that so many of his movies features men who act like that towards women. Yes. Especially in this case, a, a man who like Charles Lawton has a general sort of like the, the same sort of look and presence as Hitchcock, like people on set seeing Charles Lawton, this like sort of uh, a bigger bald man in a suit who sort of has the same jowls and voice and the same sort of like baritone voice of an Alfred Hitchcock and a uh, Charles and Lawton. Course, the, yeah. Like the authority. Yes. Right? He's the judge, right? Just like Hitchcock is the director and both have the final say in the end, exactly. what happens to everyone. I, I cannot imagine that this is a complete coincidence. Yes. And I mean, I cannot be, I don't know, there like Hitchcock adapted many novels and, and, and he never, almost never wrote screenplays, but you know, he could decide what he wanted to do. And he always uh, came back to these kind of stories. Yes. And then also worth noting with all that in mind that uh, first draft of this script was written by his wife. Just yeah. some, just uh, food for thought. Uh, um, I do want to mention. Oh, who must have been in a similar position than Ethel Barrymore was throughout Hitchcock's life? You know, because who she, knows? Yeah. We, we know that she knew a lot about what he was doing. Yeah, that this was not a secret. Although so, I uh, think I could be wrong, but I think they had a a, a pretty good relationship. Yeah, sure. From what I from what I know, I yeah. But but she's still. Definitely knew what her husband oh, was up to. Absolutely. I mean, it yeah. was almost public knowledge, you know, at, yes. at this point. So she definitely knew what what he was going, uh, what what he was doing. Yes. Uh, I, I wonder how much she saw herself in in Barrymore's character, or was able to at least, who knows, uh, add some lines that that make make her character sound more authentic. Yeah, I do just want to bring up uh, uh, Ethel Barrymore's film career, uh, which mm -hmm. I I pulled up uh, her Wikipedia, like. She made a, a pretty good amount of movies in the 1910s, like a, a fair mm -hmm. amount of uh, silent movies, and then doesn't work nearly as often in the 20s and 30s. She makes like one short film in the 20s and uh, a, a feature and a short in the 30s. Uh, there's so like in the timeline of the Oscars being a thing, she makes one movie uh, uh prior to her actual oscar career uh if you want to look at it that way she's in uh rasputin and the empress uh as uh tsarina alexandra along with uh john and lionel barrymore are also both in that uh but then 1944 is none but the lonely heart and yeah. that's like a, uh that's she went she wins best supporting actress for that uh that's like the ostensibly the second time they could have given her an Oscar, she wins an Oscar. Her next movie after that is The Spiral Staircase, and she gets another Oscar nomination for that. It's another one I'll be talking Great about movie. eventually on this show. And Great then the movie. year after that is this movie, The Paradine Case, and then also The Farmer's Daughter and Moss Rose. And she gets another nom So like three out of the first four years where she could have been Oscar nominated, she's Oscar nominated or wins. So like yeah. that's that's also something to take into consideration with this nomination here is that sure, this yeah. is like right in the middle of a real hot streak of Ethel Barrymore 
is gonna get an Oscar nomination if she's doing something. Uh, and then she, then she gets a nomination in yes. 1950. You know, I think four nominations in six years is is, is quite a lot, right? Yes. Yeah, and, and like again, it also kind of goes without saying, but like this is Ethel Barrymore of the Barrymores of like the yes. the acting dynasty of America, if there has ever been one. Uh, this is uh, a long tenured stage career. Her whole family had a long tenured stage career. Her first uh, her first credited uh, uh, stage production, according to Wikipedia, is from eighteen ninety three. Uh, yeah, th- this is this is someone that has a legend attached to her her career and her presence long before the Paradine case comes out. So, like, th- it's one of those cases. But there are there are many many such cases uh, uh, in Oscars history where like a person's legacy sort of precedes them more so than the the uh, actual quality of the performance being given. Uh, so even if this movie had come out and been shown without those two scenes that got cut, if this version of the movie, uh, that we have now screened in 1947 for Academy voters, wouldn't be surprised if she had still gotten the nomination just on the back of it's Ethel Barrymore. Yes. True. Yeah. Is there anything else we want to say about her? Uh, or do we want to move on to, uh, the rest of the movie? I think we can move on. I think we said like there, we said everything there is to say about the few things she has. Yes, about- I right, I right. I mean, um, I think we can give her more credit than I initially did. Um, yeah, but I also like over the course of that conversation just now talked myself into a higher uh, uh, appreciation for the performance as well. It's one of those where like the the more you peel back the layers, like I said, the more you see what's going on behind the surface and you see what's there that isn't immediately there. I guess. And, and again, I, guess. I would I would say the same is true for the whole movie. Even though it, I still think it's it's one of less, uh, Hitchcock's lesser movies, but there's yes. more than 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 you think at first. There's but, some uh, diamonds in the rough. Yeah. There's there's some things that I have good words for. So let's move into some of the rest of the movie. There were others. Of course, there were others. We cannot hide these things. You said we cannot hide them, Mister Keane. Let's drag them out. Let them hang me for the past and be done with it. No, no, you mustn't feel that. We won't permit them to make anything of it. Poor Dickie. How he would have hated all this. He gave me his name, his fine name. He depended upon me to protect it. He he knew all about you. I kept nothing from him. He was so good. He trusted me. He used to sit in the dark, the eternal dark, and weep. The pain never... I've tortured you enough. We'll get you free. Trust me. I shall. I do. There is a lot we can get. Lately, I've had a lot of cases where the movie I have talked about, the performance I've talked about is the majority of the conversation. Uh, this one, there's there's way more to talk about uh, than, than Ethel Barrymore. So where do we want to start? What, what, what do you want to start off with? I, I actually I think I'm I'm I made my main points already about the John Slotten character and and Hitchcock's intentions. And if you look at the movie closely, uh, again as I said, like many of the, the the framing is really really interesting. I, I again the problem of this being a podcast, I would like to like throw in some some screens uh, from from the film that are really impressive that you would might that you might yeah. miss. 
Like there's a moment where Anne Todd is, is like listening into a conversation of her husband and she's framed in a way where it looks like she's in prison. Like there yeah. are, you know, and she's just standing there staring. And it's so, it's such an interesting choice because it says so much about the whole film and her character that, that she's framed as, as, as a prisoner. Um, and there are many, many moments like that in the film, like small moments, small details that the, the, the camera captures uh, that, that shows that what, what, what Hitchcock is, is trying to say, even though it's, it's not as obvious in the, in the script. Yeah, visually, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on with this movie uh, in a way that like maybe tricked me for a while into thinking it was more interesting. And then as it goes on, I'm like, oh, just because it looks good doesn't necessarily mean I'm as invested in the actual movie. But no. like there's a few scenes where uh, Gregory Peck goes to visit uh, Alita Valley in the prison. Like uh, as a basic sort of like description of what this movie is. Uh, Alita Valley is this woman who was married to a blind colonel and he dies and she gets arrested and accused of poisoning him and Gregory Peck is the lawyer that is hired to represent her and he falls in love with her and and has this sort of Hitchcockian obsession with her and then the last half of the movie is the courtroom scene and at the end of it it's revealed she did kill him she poisoned him so that she could be with his valet and the movie is over. Yeah. Uh, but there's a few scenes where Peck goes to visit her in prison and is like, if not coaching her, just like asking her questions about her circumstances. And the lighting in this movie really struck me, oh, the, yeah. especially in those scenes. They're like in this dark room with one sort of shaft of light coming in from this window. And the, the it's really stark contrast of like, white whites and black blacks and like there's not a lot of grays in that scene where you'll have like Gregory Peck you can see the like the front of his face in a side view and then the rest just like fades into the blackness behind him and as they move throughout the space you get sometimes they're lighter and sometimes they're darker and it's a really sort of interesting way of playing with the lighting and playing, especially in a scene like mm -hmm. that, where it's all about the sort of moral grays of this woman that may or may not be a killer and this man that may or may not be betraying his wife just by being there, just by like giving himself the opportunity to listen to this woman and to fall in love with her because she's pretty and Italian. Uh, yes. And and the other one that I I, I took note of that like, doesn't have as much of a thematic resonance, but it just looks really good, is when Peck gets to the estate and uh, Louis Jordan as the valet opens up the door to the estate, the shadow cast by the edge of the door forms like a, a an arc of shadow across Louis Jordan's like shoulders up. And there's like five or six minutes of the movie where you see him exclusively cast in shadow and you don't see his face until like, later yeah, on when true. he appears at the window and that shot like it's such a sort of because this this character has been built up over the past few minutes she's mentioned this valet peck has gotten it in his mind that this valet is of some importance to the case he thinks that this guy might have actually killed the colonel and so this is a character that we are interested in seeing and he opens up the door and we just don't see him like you can't yeah. make out any of his features it is as if uh it, it's like a drawing and they just filled in the entirety of his face pure black 
like you can't see a single like speck of light on his face and it's like that for a while as he's walking through this house and turning on lights and turning away from the camera and it's a really interesting way to frame that character that like he's Mm -hmm. there there's no secret to him but we just can't see him and it, it, it adds to the sort of mystery vibes that I was hoping the movie would have more of. It ultimately doesn't really hold together as much of a mystery or a thriller, but there's little moments like that that make it feel like a richer noir thriller than it actually ends up being. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what I'm getting at again, right? If you, if you go through the film and and you find many, many little moments like that, which, which doesn't make the film better altogether although without those moments the movie would be just worse i would say yeah i i don't know how you feel but like because i i've been watching so many films or i have been watching i've not been watching so many films lately it's sometimes helpful to go to your letterbox and check out your reviews to if you don't remember all the films you've watched and i i checked that i watched the movie four years ago for the first time uh and i wrote that it's like two hours of talking yeah and that's what it is and 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 I mean, visually, the movie is still interesting. But again, the script is not that interesting. Especially yeah. because the movie also doesn't need to be almost two hours long because the, the, the conflict and the ideas are, are, are pretty clearly laid out early on. And yeah. I think it, it kind of like moves in circles for, for a lot of its runtime. It really does. Like the main conflict is addressed so head on by the characters. Like it becomes so very clear, not just to the audience, but also to Anne Todd, that uh, Gregory Peck is in love with this woman. Like, it's clear to everyone. He's not hiding anything from his wife. He's not hiding anything from his peers. Uh, and then on the other end of things, like the mystery aspect, like not not the, the interpersonal conflict, but the mystery of who killed this man. The scene, the movie opens with her getting arrested for his murder. Yes. And then it ends with her being found guilty of his murder and the only other suspect is like it's barely even a red herring and it's also Mm -hmm. pretty obvious pretty early on that uh uh what's her character's name uh uh valley's character is anna madalena anna paradine yes she was in love with his valet like that's there there's no twists that no together as like a, a twist which like you're watching a Hitchcock thriller, you're watching it for the twists and turns. You're watching Rear Window and North by Northwest and Vertigo and Psycho and Notorious. And you're watching all these movies to see how these characters are going to get into thrilling situations and how they're going to get out of them and what is going to take you by surprise. And nothing in this movie takes you by surprise. Yeah. And there, there's really. just, yeah, there's no real set pieces that, that there's not even that there are, failed set pieces there just aren't any to begin with yes yeah it's true again and it's kind of a shame yeah in a way and yeah i mean hitchcock made these kinds of movies again and again i i mean uh, i i think his, his filmography is very interesting but it's definitely not free of 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 missteps yeah and, and of course the highs are very high and and as influential as movies got and I, I think he he deserves a lot of credit, but he also has a long filmography and lots of movies that are really completely forgettable. And the Paradin case is less forgettable than some of the other movies he's made, uh, even the later ones. But 
Yeah, you know, and, yeah. and because of Hitchcock, it's still a visually interesting movie, and there's still something going on. But it, I understand why I completely forgotten everything about this film. Yeah, yeah, this is going to be one of those that, like, I watched it this morning before we record, and I'm going to talk about it in this podcast, and then by the end of it, I'm going to be like, what happened in that movie? What was like the the stuff that happened though? Um, because and also because, like, the last hour of this movie is just courtroom stuff that i found really kind of not tedious but like it 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 didn't add or present anything new it it really just like got to be repetitive of louis jordan is on the witness stand and gregory peck is asking a bunch of leading questions but of like but are you sure you didn't kill him or hate him but like seriously though were you in the room did you see someone go into the room who was in the room who wasn't in the room when were they in the room who washed the cup when did they wash the cup was the cup washed why is there a cup this doctor that is also a character for like a little bit when were you in the room uh louis jordan killed i barely don't remember what you've been talking about and i watched it again today yeah it just it really meanders in a way that like not to say that the first half of it was so thrilling and engaging that I was that invested in it, but like the first half has, you know, it has it moves to to any degree. There are multiple characters that interact with one another in different dynamics. You'll have scenes with two of them, and then three of them, and then other two, and things are moving around and to some degree keeping my interest. And then it gets to the courtroom scene and. I mean, this is an interesting sort of technical innovation in that Hitchcock shot this scene with four simultaneous cameras focused on each of the principal actors uh, so that he could do like 10 minute shots and just cut from take to take within the 10 minute performance rather than having to get multiple takes of the same thing. And like, that's interesting, but it also makes it feel so static and so just like it comes to a real halt in the third act and it, it, and, it and the courtroom scenes are still visually interesting i think yeah. there's there, there, there's stuff going on but those scenes are still not interesting yeah it's it, and it's like 50 minutes of this movie with yeah, almost no intercuts of scenes outside of the courtroom and as you say it doesn't lead to a big twist and then there's the ending that we talked about before which Again, feels really anticlimactic in a way, where everything but, is fine in this marriage again because she. I really, I, I, I just want to, I, I want to keep living, thinking that that Hitchcock was doing this on purpose. Although it's probably not true, but I, I think that at least gives the movie some credit and the ending some credit to say, ah, do you think this will all be fine now? Haven't you learned anything from the other characters, from Joss Lutton character? Yeah, um, but of course, it's either it's too subtle to really be noticeable, or it's just not there. So I'm yeah. not sure. And like the one sort of interesting thing, not well, not the one interesting thing, but one thing that I did find interesting is Anne Todd's, who I think is very good in this movie. It's actually a, a really yes. good performance from her. Uh her yes. her way of handling her husband's obsession with this client is like she says outright to him, I want her to live. I want you to uh, get her off of her charges because when you do that, you'll be done with this case and you can put this obsession to rest and everything will be fine. And if she gets found guilty and if she dies, 
you are going to be thinking about her for the rest of your life. And it's a very, like, mature, in a weird way, uh, uh, reaction to that sort of thing. Like, like I, I, mm-hmm. I know, like, she follows the natural progression of how this obsession is going to go if she dies in a way that feels almost like a meta observation on this type of character. And I, I think out of the cast, Anne Todd is like the clear MVP for me because it's just, it's, Ooh, yeah. she, she has such a difficult task to portray is a woman who, again, like Ethel Barrymore's character knows her husband has his uh, 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 interests lying elsewhere. But unlike Ethel Barrymore's character, she's like, actively fighting against that while not like she's not causing a scene she's not fighting her husband she's not getting angry at him but she's she's fighting it in a very mature way that really mm-hmm. really stuck with me I, I really liked her performance i thought she was kind of incredible uh where well everyone else was good to very good or well, for the most part, there's some performances here that aren't the best that are kind of stiff. But like, I-, I thought she really rose above the rest of the cast in terms of, of. I just thought she was really good. I thought she did a really good job with a difficult character. I, I, to I make agree. Feel yeah, really I, I think he, I think she was pretty good. Uh, th- th- another thing that came up on the IMDb uh, trivia page was that like. This movie didn't, it wasn't critically loved, it wasn't critically hated, it got sort of mixed reviews at the time, but uh, Anne Todd and Joan Tetzel, who plays Charles Coburn's daughter, uh, were kind of uh, unanimously praised by critics, that their their dynamics together as friends and their just individual dynamics in the movie were uh, the best performances in it, so worth a note. I didn't have as much to say about Joan Tetzel, I thought she was good but I didn't really take as strong note of her. Yeah, same same here. Again, as I said before, I think their their dynamic is um I mean if I say odd, that makes it more maybe that, that that's more me than than what the movie is doing, but they're so close together and, and comparing it to all the other relationships you see in this film, I I, I thought there there must be something there that we have this I don't want to call them couple, but you know the way they act are they, they really act like a married couple anyway. Although they're yeah. clearly father and daughter, yeah. But it, it fits so well to so many other things in in this film. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's it's the, but I I don't really think we needed their characters. Yeah, I I mean I think Coburn is is vaguely interesting, but kind of falls off. Like he he serves a, a function in the plot at least of. Of sort of bringing this all together, he's, I think, uh, uh, Alita Valley's counsel that brings Peck to the case and sort of serves as an advisor to that. So like he at least has a a functionary role, even if he's not the most interesting character. Uh, but yeah, his his daughter is good, but not necessary for the plot to function. If if you take no. that character away. The the only real thing you you lose is that scene with her and Antod at a restaurant, like talking about where where you have Antod bouncing off of her of, of like, I know what my husband's doing, I know how he feels about this woman, and I 
she's sort of like going over that in her mind of how she's going to react to that. We haven't really talked at yeah. all about Gregory Peck in this movie, who is the lead. I think there's a reason for that. Yeah. He's I think okay. it's a pretty... I mean, the performance is not great, but his, his character is also... It's, it's really one of the least interesting characters in the film. And I think that's one of the reasons why the film is not that effective, because he's like... He's such a blank slate in a way. Like... He like he he falls for 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 uh, um, his client so fast that you you don't even know. I think you don't even see that he he changes his mind or anything. He's just like yeah. there, and then she's gone, and he's back with with his wife, and it's like he he's kind of a nothing character. I don't yeah. know. I, I I think that's one of my biggest disappointments when I watch this film for the first time because I thought, well, I know it's not a famous Hitchcock movie, but it has Gregory Peck. Can't be that bad, but it's like. He's really the most forgettable character in a way in the film. Yeah, like, he he has such a patter with his wife in their first scene, and they're so charismatic and loving together, and he's all jovial in the way that Gregory Peck can be this sort of jovial figure. And then he goes to see Alita Valley in the prison, and immediately, like, the first shot of him looking at her, he just has stars in his eyes just staring yeah. at her across the table. And then he yeah. goes home and is so cold to his wife, and so dismissive and like, oh, well, we can have our anniversary trip some other time. Who cares about anniversaries? And just like, he really turns on a dime so quickly and is, uh, yeah, it, it's not the most interesting or well-developed character, especially no. among the uh, obsessed Hitchcock protagonists. Like, this no. is done so much better in so many other Hitchcock movies. Yes, that like, yeah. yeah. I, I I don't really like, and he also wasn't Hitchcock's first choice. Hitchcock wanted uh, uh, Laurence Olivier or Ronald Coleman because the movie's set in London, and uh, they were both busy. Ronald Coleman filming the movie that ends up winning him the Oscar this year, and Hitchcock making or uh, not Hitchcock, uh, uh, Olivier making Hamlet, and then and the studio wanted someone American, I think, and someone that was a box office hit. And so Hitchcock went for Peck because there's still some level of gravitas. And they had worked together already on Spellbound. But, right, remember uh, again, right? yeah. Yeah, uh, he's not the best suited for this role. And uh, I think he does a, an okay job with the material, but it's not very well written. No, uh, which can take us into, I can talk about Selznick, because... Uh, a lot of the issues lie in the script here, and the, the uh, like I said, the book came out in 1933. Uh, Alma Reville does the first does the adaptation from like she she writes out a screenplay from that book. Uh, they get James Bridey, who I think was a uh, like a playwright or something, uh, to to do a pass on it. Uh, Ben Hecht also does a pass on it, but then Selznick, uh, uh more or less rewrites it almost from scratch. I, if I if I read that correctly. And he would like ha come up with rewrites and send them to be like, oh, film this tomorrow instead. Film it this way. Uh, it's written this way now. So like Selznick's uh, interference is not just a post-production thing. It also comes into play here, uh, which Selznick was a producer. He wasn't a screenwriter. So mm -hmm. that maybe. Uh, uh, hinders a lot of this movie in on yes, the sure, yeah. on the page. Something else that I thought was really funny about Selznick's interference, just like a, a little side note here, 
uh, is that he went through what did it say? 18 different title changes uh, uh, in the production. Like he had so many different names that he was pitching for this movie to be titled. And then he ended up switching it back to the Paradine case, which was the name of the book uh, just a few hours before the movie premiered. Interesting. Says a lot about the film and the way it is. Uh, I don't know. The way it presents itself. Yes. And uh, uh, Selznick's uh, uh, interpretation of it and his, his, I guess, faith in it. I don't know. He, just, oh, and also just the breadth of his his uh his power over it is that he was able to do all that um what else about this actual movie um i do uh, just speaking of of more like individual shots that i thought were well done the um the scene where peck is at the the mansion at the estate uh, and he's in the bedroom there's like a a portrait of alita valley over the bed uh and it's like like a, like a a painting of her or whatever, uh, and the camera sort of like focuses on it and then moves around in an arc to the side of the bed in a way to capture that feeling of like the painting's eyes following you for no matter where you are in the room. It's a really interesting way to to show that that's what he's doing, uh, and it, it it like the eyes do sort of follow you as the camera moves. I thought that was interesting. We also haven't talked about her performance at all, I'm realizing now. Uh, what what did you think of her? Um, I'm, I'm a bit of a loss at uh, saying saying too much about any specific performances that I, yeah, I even I kind of have to remember, actually. Yeah. Is... Yeah, it's a... It's interesting. Um, originally, uh, uh, they want, uh, I think Selznick wanted Garbo. He wanted Greta Garbo, who apparently oh, yeah. uh, the author of the book had envisioned her in the role while he was writing it. Like she's sort of based on the icy foreign Garbo type, but she turned it down. She didn't want to play a murderer or mur murderess. I think it, the, the article or the, the, the thing said, um, she was offered this and she was offered I Remember Mama and she turned it down uh, and was quoted as saying no murderesses, no mamas. Uh, which is good little Garboism there. Uh, yeah, she's fine. Yeah, I she's think. fine. I, I liked, I, I, I've seen her in so many films where I liked her much more. Yeah. And I was kind of like, she was another reason where I thought this movie can't be that bad. I mean, Gregory Peck can be hit and miss, I think, because he made so many movies. And so many forgettable movies. But Alita Valley is a really interesting actress. But even like even considering what the twist is, that, that she is guilty after all, I think that the movie doesn't give her a lot to do. Like yeah. it, it, one note as well. Like she's she's like having to do the same facial expressions, saying the same things, and then the end comes. And it's 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 kind of a shame too. The camera loves her. Like the camera yeah. moves around her face a lot, and I think there are again many interesting shots uh, around her face, but it does make her character or her performance as interesting as it as it could have been. Like, yeah, she's such an interesting actress, but but again, not in this film because the film, except for Anne Todd and uh, Ethel Barrymore, 
and we haven't mentioned that, but I also think Charles Lawton's performance isn't that great either. I, I mean, he's so much better in so many other films. Yeah. A bit of one note performance here. He's better yeah. as uh, in, in a courtroom thriller with a similar, similar vibe uh, in witness for the prosecution. Like that's course, a, a much more yeah. enjoyable sort of like uh, irascible old man uh, performance there. And he's the lawyer in that he's not the judge, but still. Um, yeah. I think, Alita Valley has like she has the right vibes to be the icy femme fatale in a in a movie like this but they just don't give her anything to do uh, no. beyond that beyond giving these steely-eyed looks to the camera and being shot well and being lit well but exactly, she yeah. she just and like she's an actress that like I didn't know I knew as well until after watching this movie. Like I didn't realize who she was like that. She's uh, in the third man. I didn't realize that she was the dance instructor in Suspiria. Uh, uh, there's, there was just, I, I looked at her Wikipedia page afterwards. and I was like, Oh, I've seen her. She's um, the doctor's assistant in eyes without a face. Like the eyes without a face. It's just, it's, it's such a great performance there. Yeah. If you see see this film it's hard to imagine that it's the same person yeah because it just gets so little to do here and it and it's not bad like i, I don't think she gives a bad performance but it's just not much it, it, it is a a performance that has one mode that is required of her yeah. and she does a good job with that mode but yes there are other movies like this where this type of character has more to do and uh, it, she just sort of pales in comparison to those other types. Exactly. Which yeah. is a shame. Yeah. Uh, where does this fall in Hitchcock's career? I didn't actually look at the immediate well, surrounding films. This is actually interesting, uh, because especially when you mentioned that this is his last film with uh, Selznick, because the next film he makes is Rope. Oh, uh, yeah. And Rope is, is kind of the beginning of his of his... I, I don't know if the if the if the Hitchcock we know today, the one who who experiments with film, who 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 revolutionizes film, and I mean, of course, he made many many interesting important films before, but like Rope is the beginning of 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 this of the Hitchcock career that he's famous for, you know? Yeah. Again, oh. with hits and misses, like there's Rope and there's Strangers on a Train, which is and so then... famous, and Slam for Murder, and so on and so on, and then Rewindow. But in between this, under Capricorn and Stage Fry, movies that no one remembers that that they were even made by Shakespeare, by Shakespeare, I'm saying. Shakespeare. And, and then I mean, something is kind of the Shakespeare for movies yeah. in a way. He's, he's so famous. But and, then you'll get he, something like an I Confess, which I've never even heard of. Oh, it's that, that's a very interesting film. Not a good film, but like it's very interesting. More interesting, more interesting than a paradigm case, I would argue. Because it has Montgomery Clift, and Montgomery Clift is is not Gregory Peck, so uh, yeah, you, you have that. Uh, even though it's Montgomery Clift at 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 his uh, worst in his life, but it's still it's a very interesting film, um, not his best film anyway. Um, and and the Paradigm case follows like like a, a very interesting career too, like Shadow of a Doubt, Lifeboat, Spellbound, Notorious. Like Hitchcock had a lot of good films with Selznick in the forties. Yeah, Rebecca, when, like. But, Especially Rebecca and so on and so on. But when when his contract ended, I mean that that's when he really like bloomed, you know, and 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 showed what he, what he could do, like doing rope, you know, doing this experiment that that people thought was impossible to do, 
you can still show this movie and people are impressed that he attempted to do that when when it was basically impossible to do a movie without cuts and he and he still tried to do that and i think it says a lot that he felt the freedom after after being free of of Seltzing to to try out a movie like that yeah and i mean rope is so, so famous for its technical achievement or but but it's also a movie about two gay men who murder a man in the first scene of the film and try to get away with it and and based on this famous case like there's a lot going on with rope and i think yeah. rope is not the most interesting film still because it's also just people in a room talking um yeah but it, it showed the path that that hitchcock was going uh going on for for a while that Anyway, like Rope is the beginning of what ended up what where he got to with with Vertigo and and Psycho, I would argue. Yes, uh, I have a question because you uh, are much more familiar with the the uh, le- lesser, we'll say, Hitchcock filmography. Is Rope his first color movie? Uh, I would say yes, without looking it up. <laughs> like I'm I'm looking but, at these all of the ones that I know of. Yeah, I'm pretty prior sure to Rope, that is kind of a perfect uh uh sort of parallel there uh just like it's interesting that this movie comes out and then rope is yeah, such is, a clear like start of the next chapter of his career yeah and it's also the first one in color and then like how that goes from there uh I don't have much more of a thesis beyond that but it's an interesting little uh no you're right you're absolutely right opening That's the a... door to oz type thing and I mean, he he returned to black and white. Yes, of course, with, with Psycho, with Psycho yeah. and Stranger on the Train, and so on. But yeah, you're right. You're right. Rob was also his first color film, or his first technical film, as it says. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Paradigm Case is kind of a, the end of a of a of a phase. You you could argue. Yeah. Uh, so that makes it an interesting movie in his career as well. Yeah, uh, and then obviously, like we're not going to bring anything new to the Hitchcock conversation of like man, oh man, those other movies after this are really good, but man oh man those other movies after this are really good i've seen I like wanna... yeah oh, no. i was just uh no just, no go uh, ahead i don't want to stop yeah. you and uh, just um i've seen a lot of the, like more movies than i would expect of his in the theater uh especially because there's like a theater in town that did a not a full retrospective but like a, a series last summer uh of a bunch of hitchcock movies so i got to see like north by northwest and notorious and what was the other one? I think I also Vertigo uh, in the theater. And I've seen Rear Window and maybe Psycho. And I've seen Rope in the theater and uh, maybe one other that I'm forgetting. But yeah, his movies, like, they they play so well in the theater. Yeah. It's, it's, oh, I've seen Dial M for Murder in the theater. I've seen... I feel like there's still one other one that I'm forgetting, but I can't uh, place which one it is. But yeah, great uh, master of cinema for a reason. Uh, yes. Not for this movie. Par- Parody Case isn't going to be remembered in the annals of history uh, aside from a little footnote. But uh, otherwise, still- yeah. If you wanna, if you wanna see why Hitchcock was famous, you can still watch the Parody Case and see as we as we repeatedly said now like the visuals are striking and they are striking compared to other films of this time um he yeah. still shows a lot of his talent in this film even though the the movie doesn't really offer him a lot to do 
Um, yeah. What I wanted to say is because, of course, like there's like a window in all of these great films. But again, like Hitchcock made a lot of great films before as well. And uh, and it's even though people know Rebecca and people know uh, maybe I, I'm never sure if what of his films are famous of his early films. Shadow of um, a Doubt. Is is a big one, notorious. Oh, Rebecca is also the other one that I saw in the theater. I, I forgot about yes, that. Like, okay, yeah, suspicion. I, I think the most famous one, office yeah. of this part of his career. Thirty nine um, steps, kind of. Thirty nine steps. I think thirty nine steps is a movie that should be really high up on 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 any list that mentions Hitchcock. It's really one of his top ten films. I would argue. Like, if you have not, for some reason not seen this film, and and the thirty nine steps is a film that. It has a lot of Hitchcock tropes that you see in like Hitchcock makes I would throwing out a theory that is not completely true because he made so many films, but you can divide his films into man being accused of something he didn't do and man being obsessed with a woman. Uh, because most of his films fall into one of these two categories. Um, yeah. which and if then... you combine them is, is 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 kind of worrying. But and then there's the third category. There's just so many birds here. <laughs> that was kind of just the birth, though. <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, <laughs> Under Capricorn and Stage Fright are really strange films that, that he made shortly after the parody case that fit into yeah. no category. And he made these kinds of films again and again. Like, there are a lot of films that, that fit nowhere, and that, those are the films that people forget completely, sometimes for a reason. Yeah. Again, I need to... It's really not his, his, his worst film at all. Yeah. I, I really need to go through and watch some of these lesser ones in quotation marks again like in the the less famous at least hitchcock movies there's a lot in here that i just haven't gotten around to yet and i would love to do a deep dive someday and get a, a greater appreciation for what's under the surface of psycho vertigo rear window the 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 ones that everyone knows and there's a lot and there's a lot and i think what's what makes it worth doing that i did that like Two years ago, I think I watched all the Hitchcock movies I haven't seen at this point, which were still a lot because there's just so many. So many. What, what what was the most interesting part about this is how how much the tropes that he uses repeat themselves from early on, like from the 1920s on. You see elements that he keeps repeating in the films for the next 40, 50 years, which is really fascinating to watch if you if you take a look. And I mean, like the the Lodger from 1927 is a really interesting film. Where he kind of makes a version of Jack the Ripper, uh, and then if you watch one of his last movies, uh, Frenzy, uh, I don't know if you've seen this one from 1972, like almost 50 years later, which is a very similar film because it's also about a serial killer, and yeah. it's it's like it's it's Hitchcock in the 70s, and where where he realizes he is now really free of doing whatever he wants, and like suddenly you have nudity and you have really cruel violence because it's the 70s, so it's possible. And 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 it's 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 a really interesting uh, career to to follow from beginning to end. I, I can yeah. only recommend that, even if if not everything is pretty. And if you yeah. think about Hitchcock as a person behind a lot of the things that he shows in his films, it's even less pretty to think about. But but still, it's worth it. Yeah, I think one of these over here you can see the audience can't because this is an audio medium. But one of these uh, uh, DVDs on the shelf behind me is a Hitchcock box set with like a bunch of the early movies. Uh, so at some point I may have to break that out and uh, go through the ones I haven't seen because it's like a lot of them too. It's not all of them, but it's like like I don't even remember how many. But it, it's it's a pretty hefty box set there. Uh, mm -hmm. Is there anything else about 
the actual movie that we want to talk about or do we want no, to No, I'm surprised we, we talked about it so much already. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, although still not as long as the actual movie is cuz it's a and it's not a long movie. It's like an hour 54, but it feels long. At this point in if you sync up this episode with the movie, they are still they have at this point gotten into the courtroom and will stay in the courtroom for another like 30 minutes. Yes. Yes. And I mean, it's not surprising that we talk long because we always talk longer than we think. But this movie, I really thought we didn't don't have that much to talk about. Yeah, uh, somehow. Uh, but yeah, let's move on to some Oscar stuff. So, 1947. There are some like critics groups, and I think the Golden Globes may have just been starting around this time. But uh, no precursors to talk about for this movie. No, yes. uh, no stray citations anywhere. Uh, so we can just talk about the actual, uh, the 20th Academy Awards here. Uh, so have you seen any of this supporting actress lineup now? Yes, I, um, well, here's what I did. I, I watched a uh, gentleman's agreement because it was the, uh, the, the best picture winner and hadn't seen it before. And it has two of the nominations. So I thought it's worth checking this one out. And it has Gregory Peck. And it has Gregory Peck again. Yeah. Which, uh, was kind of surprising. And, um, and I did like watched uh, some scenes with the performances from the other movies, even though I, I wasn't able to watch the whole films. But I just wanted to have an impression of, like, what are the performances, the supporting actress performances of this year. Yeah. So uh, we can actually talk about all the performances, at least briefly, um, because okay. at least I have an idea. Okay, so yeah, let, let's start off then with uh, Gentleman's Agreement with uh, the two nominees there. Uh, let's start with the winner, Celeste Holm. I watched Gentleman's Agreement when I did my episode on Possessed uh, ages mm -hmm. ago. And I, it's not a movie that has stuck with me a ton. I remember liking Celeste Holm, though. I remember thinking that she did a really good job in uh, not the most dynamic role, but I remember liking her. At yeah. least. How, how do you feel about that performance? I, I thought it was okay. I think it's an, an interesting movie because it's it's a movie that it's impossible to imagine at any other point in history. Because it like deals with anti anti-Semitism in such a direct way. Yeah. So we know, oh wait, it's after World War II, of course they deal with it. And then you think about, well, they deal with anti-Semitism after World War II, like in America, which I find very, very interesting, you know, and it was a best picture winner. Yes. And it deals with, with prejudices in general. I, I think it's a very interesting film, actually. Yeah. Um, and it it pairs well, uh, it wouldn't have been anything that you would have picked up from watching the scenes of her in Crossfire, but Crossfire is also yeah very much about that. And it's that's I mean I'll talk about that movie in a second as well. But uh, uh, they they pair well together in, in yes they do series, yeah I, I, uh, I really for those reasons that, no. yeah. Um, uh, South Tom, I, I think was I think it's fine. Again, you you're right. It's not the most interesting uh, character, and I'm kind of surprised now having seen at least parts of all of these performances that she is the winner of this bunch. I yeah. think she's been my winner just from, from what I have seen. Yeah. She's, she's good. It's, um, I, I, it's from what I remember, a sympathetic character, right. That, that she's like yeah. helpful and kind and, uh, at, le at least more so than, um, who's the romantic lead? Je Dor Dorothy McGuire, who I remember. Yeah. Is a little, Maybe I I just didn't like that character and it reflected poorly on the performance, but I I didn't really like her all that much in that. So maybe Celeste Holm as like not a, an anti-Semite 
just gets sympathy votes for that for being kind towards uh Gregory Peck throughout all this. Um Anne Revere, I do not remember other than she's there and also so is ba- baby Dean Stockwell. Yeah, but Anne Revere, at first I I I I I watched scenes of the film and I was I was like, oh well, she, it's this kind of role. She plays Gregory Peck's mother. But then I rewatched some of the scenes and I realized that she, she has a really interesting role, actually, because she's like, she keeps telling Gregory Peck, you know, you tell your son, Dean Stockwell, uh, we've talked about seeing Stockwell before on this podcast. We sure have. Uh, uh, you, you tell your son about like prejudice and anti-Semitism, and then you talk badly about women, you know, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. You're contradicting yourself. And I think she does a really interesting job in doing that. It's, I think it's a really interesting character. I, I, and I really like the performance. It, because again, if you look at her closely, you see that there's a lot going on. It's quite a multi-layered character, um, considering considering the film and how many characters this film has and how many actresses and actors it has. Uh, I, I really liked her, actually. All right. Yeah, I'm... I'm cool. I, I don't think I'm ever going to re-watch Gentleman's Agreement. It's not like a movie that I'm I'm clamoring to uh, revisit but good to know that that performance maybe holds up better than I, I remember not that I disliked her more but... than Paradigm Case I have to say yeah yeah that's fair that's I, I I I don't again neither of them are movies I'm going to really I understand that yeah yeah uh and then these other two uh <laughs> two very interesting movies uh for sure yeah, I do I definitely want to watch Crossfire in in, in yes. total because I've seen uh, I, again when we talked about lightning and shadows. I think this movie has a lot of yeah very interesting scenes and it's it's oh I, I don't know how to pronounce his name Edward Dimitric I think it's Dimitric yeah I think he's a very interesting director in general and I think he he never makes a boring film or a or a bad looking film yeah um, and I was kind of. Uh, angry at myself for not taking more time with the film, but I just didn't have the time. But what yeah, I've seen happens. Very interesting. Yes. The yeah, grand character, I don't know if I found that too interesting. Yeah, she's um her character, like you you kind of have to see her in the context of the movie. Uh yeah. for the weight of of her character. Because like she is also not really instrumental to the plot as much. Uh she's you know like in some indirect ways she is, but She's more there to serve. Uh, 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 I I wouldn't even really know how to describe her how she fits into the movie, but uh, I it's it's a really good movie that also does have like a ten to fifteen minute scene that is just one character explaining anti-Semitism to a like uh, a Christian guy from Tennessee of like, well, how would you like it if if like. If, if this guy decided all of a sudden he hated men that wore striped neckties and he decided to kill you just on that. Uh, and and it, it's a lot of gentleman's agreement. Yes. Oh, yes, very much so. It, it does have a, uh, it's, uh, it's an interesting sort of backstory there where like the book that, that, that Crossfire is based on, uh, one, that part is more of a subplot than the actual main driving plot. And two, uh, it's not an anti-Semitic murder; it's a homophobic murder. Uh, mm. But they, uh, they, the uh, censors would not allow even a mention of homosexuality, so it was changed course, to anti-Semitism. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, Crossfire, I think, 
especially the first section of it uh, functions really well as a thriller. Uh, Really good cast. Robert Ryan is great. Robert Mitchum doesn't have as much to do, but I mean, you know me, I love Robert Mitchum. Gloria Graham, I think is actually very good in her scenes. Uh, She's also not in it a ton. She has maybe three or four scenes at most, Mm -hmm. but uh, it's, it's a character that could easily fall into stock tropes of like, Oh, She's the like brassy call girl that that is, you know, cold and reserved and uh, uh, pushes back. But like, no, she she has more depth to her in that as well that I, I, I really responded to that performance. She would maybe be my vote of this lineup, I guess. I don't know if I have a, a strong winner out of this group. It's either her or Barrymore, honestly. Uh, maybe that's just because I... Uh, talked about Barrymore's performance so much that I've talked myself up into really liking it uh, on on this podcast. But um, yeah, what I, I think the last one, huh? What about the last nominee? Oh yeah, the last nominee. Uh, a movie that I will be covering on this show at some point, but I have also watched it because uh, there's another theater in uh, not in town, but like in my state that's like drivable distance that does exclusively rep it's like a one screen theater it's an old theater that's restored i've seen a bunch of stuff there i've seen like the shining and it happened one night and what's up doc i've seen a bunch of stuff there uh and last year for whatever reason they showed the egg and i uh i know what reason it's because um marjorie main i think either grew up in that city or like what like was from there or she has some connection to that city uh and they showed the egg and I, and uh, I went with my mom and some of her friends who had some connection to that movie as well or something. Uh, and I watched that movie in the theater and I'll have to watch it again at some point when I do that episode. And it's a movie. I just like took some glimpses of it and I was like, oh dear, like it's, it's, it's... it looks like a very silly movie. Yeah, you know the sitcom Green Acres. Uh, uh, no. With, um, so here, uh, who's who's the lead of that? I'll cut around this. Uh, it's a sitcom from the '60s that starred uh, Eddie Albert and Ava Gabor. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, yeah, imagine as a a rich couple that moves to a farm and lives on a farm, and wackiness ensues, and yeah. that sitcom was heavily inspired by the egg and i which is that uh but it's a movie and it's not very good it's frederick murray and claudette colbert and it's a lot of it is very contrived and it's jealousy Mm. and romance and farming and farming mishaps and And they make a lot of faces yeah animal mishaps i think there's like dog stuff uh and then this is also uh, the first in what would be a long series of Ma and Pa Kettle films. And Marjorie Maine plays Ma Kettle, who is, they're like a, a hillbilly couple that have like 20 kids and the house is a mess and they can't control their kids and they're sort of older and, and uh, brassy and they live on this farm and isn't that something. Uh, she's not bad from what I remember. I think she's like fine in the role, but it's... Uh, it's nothing. This is a 
it's just because these characters, these Ma and Pa Kettle characters were such breakouts from this movie that like got to be wildly popular and had all these spin-off books and movies about them that this nomination comes from. It, it was a, yeah, I, a that they, I didn't know that there were seven Mark Kettle movies. Yeah. It was it's a, a Zeitgeist role thing. in a Mark Kettle film. And it's called The Kettles on Old MacDonald's Farm, if you can believe it. It's I sure can. Oh, it I, was a, a Zeitgeist no thing that has not stayed in the popular culture. Strange. Not the most woke movie as I could see from uh, the Yak and I, yes, like from the from the, yeah. the black uh, waiter in the train who makes uh, faces and uh, oh, like I forgot about that Americans who who pop up at one point and it's 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 not, it's not yeah, pretty. yeah. There's there's not great stuff in that movie, uh, which, which not... is something I expected much more from 1947 movies than two movies about anti-Semitism. So yeah, there you. That's true. Uh, but yeah, that's. That's our supporting actress lineup. Not a, a like. There's not necessarily any of these that hold up as like, oh, these are all time great performances that we talk about today. Like, uh, are there any of that in this year? Actually, well, uh, like Edmund Gwen and Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street is a performance that has held up, uh, and there are good performances nominated here. There's some that I haven't seen yet, but that I am looking forward to. But uh, this this supporting actress lineup doesn't inspire a ton of like no. memorability no i i i mean if we if we i don't know if we if we want to make that call but i i do think now after talking about it that i think ethel barrymore's performance is maybe one of the better ones yeah oh yeah but i, I do so. i do like Anne revere's performance in gentleman's agreement as well so yeah i have a little uh not even really a game for you just like a can you think just like no hints, just like I'm going to give you a prompt and see how many you okay. can get. But uh, uh, Ethel Barrymore's performance here is one of, if I counted correctly, nine uh, performances in Hitchcock movies that were Oscar nominated. Ooh. Can you uh, try and name the other eight? And if not, I'll just read them off because there's a couple in here that I would not have gotten. I didn't. As you know, I'm I, I can be good with games, but not necessarily when it comes to Oscar nominations. Yeah. Because that's something that I remember just remember very well. And when you tell me, I will say, "Oh yes, oh yes." But I. Yeah. And I mean, the Hitchcock movies in general, although a lot of them have Oscar nominations, there are few of his movies that have a lot of Oscar nominations. Yeah. I'm actually, surprised that you say that there are these many acting nominations. Right. Then again, he made so many movies; it shouldn't be that surprising. Like his filmography is so long. Yeah, I mean he uh, he made a movie almost every year. We you you we just can't forget that. Yeah, uh, do you want to take a stab at it, or do you want me to just read off the list? Um, I, I mean I'm looking at filmography, just thinking which ones there are, but I'm I'm just not sure. Hmm. Marnie wasn't nominated for anything, right? Mm, I don't think so. No. Um. No, I'm not sure. I would just okay. like I would just like I mean So we have yeah. uh uh Laurence Olivier, Joan Fontaine, and Judith Anderson all nominated for Rebecca. Yeah, Rebecca would uh, be something I would have also that. also in that same year, uh Albert Basserman for Foreign Correspondent, uh which I haven't seen and don't know anything about that actor. 
the next year after that, Joan Fontaine wins Best Actress for Suspicion, uh, the only acting win for a Hitchcock movie. Uh, Michael Chekhov for Spellbound, Claude Rains for Notorious, Ethel Barrymore for the for the uh, Paradine case. Paradine, keep. I I caught myself again, and then uh, Janet Lee in Psycho got a Best Supporting Actress nomination. Of course, yeah, Psycho, yeah. Uh, I mean, then... e- easy to say that there could be many, many more acting yes. nominations for Hitchcock films, right? But you know, again, Hitchcock yeah. was not not popular with the Oscars. Yes, like I I have the the there's a list that I found of all of the wins and nominations for in any category for Hitchcock movies. Uh, there's only six wins. Uh, for his filmography, uh, Rebecca wins Best Picture and Cinematography Black and White. Uh, Suspicion, like I said, won Best Actress for Joan Fontaine. Spellbound won Best Music, uh, Best Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture. Uh, to Catch a Thief won Best Filmography, or Cinematography. That's not a category. Uh, I'll take that back. Uh, to Catch a Thief won Best Cinematography Color. And The Man Who Knew Too Much won Best Original Song for Que Sera, Sera Whatever Will Be Will Be. Of course. Uh, but yeah, a bunch of nom- Rebecca got a bunch of nominations. Uh, Foreign Correspondent got a bunch of nominations. Uh, uh, Hitchcock himself was nominated for director how many times? Let's see. Five, five times. Five times for Rebecca, Lifeboat, Spellbound, Rear Window, and Psycho. Uh, uh, the later one, like the the ones that, the, the movies that, uh, for lack of a better way to say it, that people cared about. Uh Shadow of a Doubt got a uh, original screenplay nomination. Spellbound got a bunch. Notorious got uh, Claude Rains and original screenplay. Strangers on a Train got a cinematography nomination. Uh, Rear Window nominated for cinematography, director, sound, and screenplay. Vertigo nominated for art decoration and sound, which is like almost more maddening that like they did see the movie but didn't give it like it would be one thing if that movie was like a, a night of the hunter or the searchers or whatever that just didn't get nominations but like it did get some but just not the ones that its legacy would make you think uh north by northwest editing and screenplay and art decoration psycho got those uh directing and acting nominations along with cinematography and art decoration and then the birds got a visual effects nomination and yeah. there's more that i didn't mention but uh yeah, yeah hitchcock weird sort of oscars career that more nominations for his movies than maybe you would expect based on the fact that you always hear that there are less than you would expect there's a weird sort of balance of like yeah a bunch of nominations for a lot of these movies but very few wins and he himself never won and the ones that did win are weird wins like original song Again, considering how famous his movies are, how famous he is as a person, as a director, how influential he is, it's just surprising that, yeah, he didn't uh, didn't get lucky with the Oscars a lot, and that one of his five nominations is Lifeboat, you know, yeah, a movie that many people remember. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's an interesting career, and I feel like the more interesting part of this conversation than anything about the actual Paradine case. Yes, is for sure. Just to be able to talk about Alfred Hitchcock on this podcast, which going into this project, I didn't know that I was able to do, like I said, because I didn't know this was a Hitchcock movie for so long. And so I'm I'm pleasantly yeah, pleasantly surprised to have been able to have this conversation. Like there's a lot of directors that it's kind of surprising I do get to talk about. Like I've already yes. done Scorsese and Cronenberg and Lumet 
and Altman and David Lynch and uh, uh, I'm I had such a good streak going there of naming a bunch of big directors. John Huston, I've talked about. Uh, there are others that I'm sure I'm forgetting. Uh, John Carpenter, I got to talk about on this podcast. What? Jonathan Demi. Uh, yeah, interesting. Uh, 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 Hitchcock placement in his career, as we've talked about, but uh, ultimately not the most interesting Hitchcock movie by no. any stretch. Is there anything else about these Oscars that we want to talk about? Uh, not really a ton since of I, I categories. Seen much else, there's really nothing else I could I could say. Yeah, um, yeah, me neither. Um, I've I've seen three of the five Best Picture nominees, which is pretty cool. I guess I didn't have an ending to that thought, but uh, yeah, still need to see The Bishop's Wife and Great Expectations of those. I do want to see a double life at some point. I don't think I ever talk about this best actor lineup, but I do still want to check that one out because it actually sounds pretty interesting as a premise. Uh, uh, Yeah, I think with that, we can move on to our closing thoughts. So in your fantasy world where you get to pick all of the nominations, what nominations would you have given to the Paradine case? Well, this, this will not be a long discussion. Um, because it's, again, I mentioned I don't think it's a it's a great movie. It's 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 fine. Uh, I I can live with the other Barrymore nomination because I think she's one of the better performances of the ones we we've seen here. Although again, just out of context, I don't know if I would have given her a nomination for these uh, two or three scenes. Yeah, and if the movie deserved anything, maybe cinematography because I think the cinematography is actually really really good, even though. Um, the movie doesn't really do much with it. But yeah, cinematography is something I can really live with. But that's that's really it. Yes. Yeah, I would, uh, uh, like I said, if Barrymore is, a, like, she's not the one I would cut from this lineup uh, if I had to, because I, I'd i rank her near the top. I'd throw a supporting actress nomination for Anne Todd. I really liked her. And yeah. I that I performance. Uh, uh, and... Yeah, cinematography, black and white. I haven't seen any of these nominees. Great Expectations wins. And then it's uh, The Ghost and Mrs. Moir and Green Dolphin Street, which is never even heard of. Uh, But yeah, for the sake of the argument, take out one of those three, throw in Paradine Case. It looks good. There's really interesting camera work and uh, the lighting going on. And... uh, I could give it that and not feel bad about that. Maybe even art decoration if I'm feeling especially generous, but I'm that's not something I'm nearly as passionate about for no. this movie. Excuse me. And just because um, I'm seeing it right now, I mean the the color win for cinematography is Black Narcissus, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Which is yeah. one of the best looking movies of all time. So um Absolutely. That's... You could have filled up this supporting actress lineup with just Black Narcissus, and that would have been yes. uh, a, a stronger category from top to bottom. I mean Black Narcissus has two nominations and two wins this year, which is crazy. Yeah. Should have had more. Should have been everywhere. Picture, but, performances, but in, direction. Yes. Everything. Yes, exactly. Especially when the Red Shoes the next year gets a picture nomination and a handful of others and some wins, which is just as good. Like, Black Narcissus is just as good as the Red Shoes, if, if we're talking Powell and Pressburger. 
Uh, yeah, I think. But wrong, wrong director is wrong movie. Um, oh, wait, is that not? No, no, it is because. But that's not the movie we're talking about. Oh, unfortunately. yes, no, I. Talk about case instead of black narcissists and red shoes. I wish I could talk about. Is there there? I don't think there's a Powell and Pressburger in oh, this, mind. but like, oh, that would be so fun. I, 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 any excuse to talk about Powell and Pressburger, I'm gonna take it. Um, yeah, I think that'll do it for this episode in that case. Thank yes. you so much for coming back and completing the set and uh, talking about this movie with me. Happy to come back. Happy to return anytime. Uh, even if I wasn't ex- as uh, prepared, this was still fun. Yeah. It's still interesting to talk about. Yeah, you know, well, like, we, 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 mined, we mined way more conversation out of this movie than I was expecting while I was watching it. So uh, that's always As we tend fun. to do. As, as we do. Uh, what do you want to plug? Is there any, uh, any, where people can find you and your stuff? Well, it's been so so long that I did anything. Uh, of course you can still check out first last shot on Instagram and you can still check out my podcast. That's called parents guide. But again, as I said before, there's not much happening there right now. I'm, I'm sure it will, it will return at some point and you can still listen to all the episodes that are there. I'm so proud of it, but right now, not much happening. Life has other things for me right now understandably so uh you can find this show on twitter and letterboxd at lone acting noms and on instagram at the lone acting nominees that'll be it for this episode thank you for listening mm-hmm.